0: Can be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, special thanks to those basking in the sunlight. Uh, feel free to shift if you need to. No worries. Um, hey, last Sunday in our Lenten study of the book of Ruth, uh, we were in Ruth chapter 3, and Ruth had approached Boaz on the threshing floor. Uh, we talked about the virtuous, risky, uh, really in essence proposal that Ruth made to Boaz and their interaction. Uh, We saw the scripture use holy discretion um, to both uh, gain interest as well as conceal a little bit of what was happening. Again, as one Victorian-era Methodist minister said, what happened on the threshing floor is too beautiful, delicate, dangerous, and sublimely virtuous to be recited uh, by us. And if you remember, we were left with a cliffhanger. Naomi told Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. This is our fourth and final Sunday, walking through the book of Ruth to indeed see how does this all turn out? What does this mean both for Ruth and Naomi, but how does this fit into the overall story of the Bible? And we'll see how these threads uh, fit together. But first, if you would, pray with me. Uh, Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. 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 So I came across a USA Today article that said that the second most popular hobby in the United States based on internet interest right behind gardening is genealogy genealogy, studying uh, your family lines and family trees. I didn't know this. Um, and I would just say, if you've never thought about getting into this hobby uh, and are interested, St. Thomas's own Kurt Collier, who is an usher today, right there in the bow tie. He is an expert. This is one of his hobbies. And he could help you figure out a little bit about your family. Um, and it's sometimes interesting, right, to see how people are related. Uh, we all talk about how many degrees of separation we might be, six degrees of separation, right, from almost anyone in the world. Uh, the same article said there's actually a, a connection between Princess Diana, uh, Winston Churchill, and George W. Bush. They're all distantly related, and you can actually trace their ancestry back to a 15th century English squire, Henry Spencer of Badby, Northamptonshire. I didn't know this. Do you know that? It's amazing when you look back at family histories. He lived between 1420 and 1478, was married to Isabel Lincoln. There you go. Uh, My own family, we've done a little bit of this, but I don't know all of the background. Uh, In theory, we go back to Captain John Smith. You may study Captain John Smith in uh, U.S. history. He's the guy that lost the colony before Roanoke was discovered. So if you've heard the lost colony That's our work. We tend to do a good job with things. (laughs) Um, And maybe a little bit later, actually, uh, Henry Compton, the Anglican Bishop of London, uh, looks like was a relative all the way back through uh, my mother's family. And it's interesting, if you ask families about famous individuals in their history, um, you usually get the good news stories, right? You hear about this person that you might have read about in a textbook or Uh, This person that maybe started the family business that set up a legacy for the family. Um, You don't usually hear about, and this was Uncle Such-and-Such, he was in jail. (laughs) Um, We're not really sure about the order of marriage and birth here with this particular family member, etc. And I bring that up because we're going to be in Ruth 4. And you'll see the end of Ruth 4 kind of brings us out of Ruth into the story of the whole Bible. We get this little genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth. Um, It's actually similar to the genealogy we see in Matthew of our Lord Jesus. And that's one of the things I want to say today, is that Ruth will go on and her line will continue and we get to King David. There's some speculation that Ruth itself was written because people were questioning how David had a Moabite relative. They said, well, let's tell you why this Moabite relative might have been virtuous and a little bit different. Um, You read the genealogy of Jesus and you have Ruth, the Moabite, and Rahab, the harlot. Shocking that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, would have these kind of individuals um, in his history, his family history. Uh, If you have skeletons in your family closet, this should make you feel like you're in good company because the Lord Jesus did as well. Um, and I just want to remind you as we dig in, again, I think we forget just how much the Israelites did not like the Moabites. Um, I was reminded of this on Wednesday. We, were having, uh, we have morning prayer every Wednesday at the Young Life office, and we were going through the Psalms of the day, and uh, the Psalm had the Lord speaking, and he said, hey, there's Moab, my wash pot, my toilet. That's how the scriptures feel about this people Um, and would have been the uh, initial posture towards Ruth, my toilet, here comes King David, here comes the Lord Jesus. Fascinating. Um, But let's look at the the contours of Ruth 4 and dig in this morning. Uh, Ruth 4, 1 through 12, the first thing we're going to see is this anonymous relative at the gate. And Uh, Throughout the book of Ruth, we have heard rumors of something called a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. And I've waited until this morning to really unpack that biblical concept that plays such a pivotal role in this book. Uh, But let's talk about this. There's some background that we need. Uh, In the Torah, the Old Testament, we find this concept of a kinsman redeemer. And it would work in a few different ways. One version will be where a man dies. And his brother would marry his widow. And this would be both to care for the widow and any children they may have, um, as well as, if need be, perpetuate the family line for his brother um, with his brother's widow. Um, That seems odd to us, but this is a culture where uh, continuing the family line is the main thing you want to do. (laughs) Um, That's how you have continuity as a family. That's how you... Uh, have a life that's successful and purposeful is that your line continues and you have an inheritance and a name to pass on. And so a brother, if his brother died, would marry the widow to to continue his brother's line to keep that name alive. Then there's a second version that has much more to do with the financial situation. So there may be a family that's fallen on hard times, And they may have sold uh, themselves into a kind of indentured slavery. They may have leased their land so that the land could be worked and someone else would reap the benefit of the land. You couldn't actually sell land in ancient Israel because land you steward, it's a gift of the Lord. Um, And so there's this concept where if you're essentially, uh, you know, you're behind on everything, uh, things have been kind of repossessed, you're working for someone, well, a kinsman redeemer could come and essentially pay off what you owed. And they could either buy you back from slavery, and or they could buy your land back so that your family would have an inheritance. And again, that would be for that family, uh, not for yourself. And they said that to do this, you're acting as a kinsman redeemer. So it's an interesting concept in the Old Testament, and this, Ruth, is the only time we see it actually fleshed out. We see a real-life example of this concept of the kinsman redeemer taking place in the Old Testament, um, there were two requirements if you were going to actually be a kinsman redeemer. Uh, First is that you had to be kin, um, or you had to be akin to them. There had to be uh, a relationship. The closer the better uh, to perform this act. And then secondly, you had to have means. You had to have resources to carry out the redemption of what had been lost. And so throughout the book of Ruth, uh, we've been introduced to Boaz already, and we've been told that Boaz is a worthy man. He's a man of morals and means. In other words, there's a potential for him to actually step into this incredible role. But he told us at the end of Ruth 3, this romantic comedy curveball, hey, there's actually someone a little bit closer. Uh, There's a relative we haven't talked about or met And he actually could step in and do this. He has a better legal claim to do it. Um, I've imagined, you know, that could be a situation where let's say there's a family and the parents are, maybe they're lost somehow, tragically. Um, And there's a family friend who's like a relative who would want to take the kids in, but man, there's this sister. (laughs) And the kids might not even like that sister, but they've got a closer legal claim. If they're going to go to family court, that's what would happen. So Boaz says there's a, relative with a closer claim. Let me go see if he wants to act as the kinsman redeemer. And and Ruth 3 said, I hope he doesn't because I want to do it. But letter of the law, he has first dibs. It says that Boaz will go to the gate. This is kind of the main area of the city where business, official towns business is conducted. And it says that Boaz sits down. He's like, all right, I'm going to find this guy. I'm going to make sure that we get this figured out. Boaz is uh, not passive at all in this passage. And so we get to Ruth four, verse one, and it says, "Uh, hey, behold. It's another, uh, just so happened. Can you imagine? He's looking for this guy. He sits down and behold, that very man he needed to see came by. Supposed to actually, (laughs) uh, God knows that we need repetition. So it's like, in case you guys didn't get the point before, I'm at work. I'm working in this situation, and behold, it just so happened that this man we needed to meet came by and sat down. We're supposed to see God at work gently and subtly in every aspect of this story, and then we see the conversation that they have. It's a complex, careful conversation. It's a little difficult to navigate from our cultural vantage point. kind of reminds me of watching a film, maybe in French, and there's subtitles that are a little jumbled. We, we can get some of the point, but we don't get all the point by reading the subtitles, right? It's not like you're a native speaker. We're, we're not native to the situation, so we don't see all of the nuance happening here. Uh, this man, do you see what his name is? You don't. He's intentionally anonymous, and he's left anonymous, and there are many readings on that. Um, in Hebrew, his name is actually Poloni Hamoni. And it's supposed to sound kind of like you would call someone Joe Schmo, Mr. So-and-so. And Um, and there's a sense in which he is left, uh, I'm pretty sure they knew the guy's name, right? Why would he be anonymous? It's interesting. And there's probably a few things that could be happening. Um, One is uh, the Bible may very graciously be trying to protect this man's family from going, ooh, you missed out on a great opportunity. Um, Some of you, I I often tell the story of my own family. My grandmother, um, in her dating days, dated a guy she knew would never amount to anything. Because he was just a little dirt track racer, Richard Petty. (laughs) This happens in families. You hear almost and near misses. and Maybe they're trying to save this man's family from a near miss. You could have married Ruth. And you didn't. Uh, maybe um, they're just trying to spotlight that this man, eventually he won't fulfill this role. We'll get to that. But he's not carrying on a line of his name. So there's a sense in which they're saying, well, if you're not going to carry on their name, we're not going to carry on your name. He's intentionally anonymous. And again, you can see that as a very negative thing, or you can just see it as a foil, just like Ruth and Orpah were kind of two women. You could see how they reacted. It's not that Orpah was terrible. It's that Ruth was extraordinary. And that's my main takeaway here: is to go, man, look at Boaz. Look at him acting with covenant faithfulness. What's going on with Mr. Joe Schmoe Anonymous? Um, and by the way, Boaz here lays out just this beautiful trap for this man um, if you admire Naomi's shrewdness in telling Ruth how to go encounter Boaz, Boaz is a match for her. There's symmetry. Boaz is just as shrewd and just as wise. And so he comes to him and says, hey, did you know there's a piece of land? And the guy's like, oh, land. We like land. Um, why don't you redeem it? And it seems like he's going to do it, right? He goes, I'll take you up on that. Um, and that makes sense because if this man redeems the land, well, that's low risk, All reward. Because he gets, he gets something. Um, and, and Boaz lets him say whether he wants to be a kinsman redeemer based on the land. Hey, do you want some stuff? You want the inheritance? You want what, what was Elimelech's? Yeah, I'll do that. He goes, oh, hey, by the way, just so you know, um, there's a little fine print. Attached to the land is Ruth. And I think he intentionally says the Moabite. You don't want anything to do with that. The widow of the dead. And you've got to actually, you get Ruth to perpetuate the dead in his inheritance. Well, if getting land is low risk, all reward, uh, getting Ruth is all risk, low reward from a practical standpoint. Because he would then incur the expense of a household that maybe he did or did not have the means um, to provide for. And instead of getting land, acquiring land for his family, now he would actually acquire the cost to then pass on to these future children to perpetuate Elimelech's line. Does that make sense? You see how that would, that would work? It'd be like, hey, you have an inheritance. All you got to do is pay the capital gains tax for five years and then give it to whoever comes next. He's like, hey, maybe not. <laughs> and, and again, what you hear him say is, Uh, If I do that, I'm going to impair my own inheritance. Again, I don't read this as terribly negative. I read it as a Hebrew version of, ooh, too rich for my blood. I think he's really saying, I I can't afford to do that. Um, I I don't have the margin to both redeem the field and redeem Ruth and then hold this in trust for future children. And by the way, wasn't Ruth married for 10 years and didn't have any kids? They know that. Is there even a future here uh, to begin with? Um, One of my favorite Old Testament scholars is a guy named Bruce Waltke. He's uh, an Anglican clergyman now. And he says that if you look at this Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Anonymous, he says we should scowl at him. He says this is the type of person that's willing to participate in the covenant community as long as it involves risk, uh, and no sacrifice, which he says does not reflect the ethics of God's kingdom community. So he's in it if he gets something, but if not, I don't know if I can, I can go there. It doesn't work for him. Well, what should the motivation of the kinsman redeemer be? Well, to help, to honor, to love, to redeem. It wants to be out of affection for uh, Elimelech, who, again, we never got to know because he died in Ruth 1. Either way, this guy bows out. He's never heard from again, uh, literally, and I think literally. That's why he's called Mr. Anonymous. We're just going to leave him out. He, gets, uh, he erases himself from the narrative. He's gone. And so then we see what happens. Well, they have a sandal and seal the deal. I don't get that. Do you get that? This is apparently a cultural custom, and it had something to do with you would take off your sandal and put your foot on the land you had acquired. Um, it's like going to unlock your door for the first time. It's that kind of a ceremony that they're alluding to. Um, and we, we're told that it's at the gate, there are witnesses. And I think one of the overriding things that we're supposed to learn in Ruth 4, is this is all done legitimately, in the light, over and above. And again, I think I can hear people in David's day going, wait a minute, aren't you related to that Moabite? And... Wasn't there something kind of fishy about how that all went down? They're saying, no, it was at the city gate. There were witnesses. Wasn't there that closer relative? Nope, he was given the absolute every chance to take up the concept by Boaz, and he said, no, here's how it all, I I think that's behind this to make sure we know this is legit. Because David's lineage is dependent on this being legit, Um, and official, and above board. And so then what we have is Ruth marries Boaz, welcomed into the marriage. Um, The women give this beautiful benediction. The women of the town are the chorus in this play, essentially. Um, And we see just this, uh, how how the community would be a support system and family in ancient Israel in ways that I think are, are tough for us to think of. And this former outsider from Moab, from literally the Lord's toilet place, is brought in. Not only brought in, but brought near and will eventually, her line will issue David. I always think of Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is about uh, Gentiles being brought into the church. Just that idea of an outsider being welcomed in. Ephesians 2, hey, remember, you were at that time separated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now, but now. That's Ruth. She's out, she's cut off, she's destitute, but now she's been brought in, brought near, and will be blessed. And so we have Ruth 4, 13 through 17. And we should cherish this. We don't always get happy endings in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. We get a happy ending. A marriage, a child, the restoration of Naomi. It says, so Baalaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. First, by the way, I think that tells us that what could have happened on the threshing floor didn't happen on the threshing floor because now they're consummating their marriage together. Um, we also should just hear this idea of, wait a minute, wasn't Ruth married 10 years with no kids? Um, over and over again in the Old Testament, the Lord um, will give miracles in this sense, children of promise. And so I think we're supposed to see the Lord's handiwork here. Um, in having this child uh, for Ruth. Um, It's an incredible scene. And then you would expect to hear all about Ruth the mother. But you don't. You see who kind of takes over? We're back to Naomi. Naomi, who had seemingly lost everything. Naomi, who lost her husband, lost her boys, had to leave her homeland, apparently had to put the land in hawk. Naomi, who had said, ah, don't even call me that. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. I'm empty. God has dealt terribly with me. We have Naomi with a bouncing Obed on her knee as a proud grandmother. Um, and actually, I mean, it, the way I read this, when it says that the child Obed is given to Naomi, um, it looks like Naomi is going to probably raise this child. Um, I mean, this is not just, you know, visit twice a year grandparenting. Uh, This is, here's a a child. You lost two, here's a great one. And that child will be be both delight for Naomi as well as provision for Naomi to care for her, to make sure that all goes well uh, with Naomi as she ages. Um, And then the women, they just shower uh, Ruth with even more praise. I say, do you realize that this Moabite daughter-in-law, again, slur intended, do you realize she's worth more to you than seven sons? That is shocking. Seven, the number of perfection and fullness. If you were to ask an ancient Israelite, what is the perfect family? Like we think of husband, wife, two kids, picket fence. That's like a cliche, right? If you're in ancient Israel, you wanted seven boys, maybe three girls if you had to. That was considered a full house. She's worth more to you than seven sons. I was imagining a Georgia football scenario where you would see a team play and you would say, hey, that right guard, that big guy doing the blocking, man, he's worth more than seven five-star quarterbacks. You're like, what? (laughs) That's not how this is supposed to work we're supposed to be uh, overtaken with delight that Ruth is being honored in this way and that Naomi is, is seeing Ruth in this light. And again, that Naomi has been fully restored and redeemed, her former loss um, reversed. Again, in contrast to the devastation and death and famine where she said, I am empty and bitter Well, here we see redemption and life and a new fullness. And then almost out of nowhere, (laughs) we get this little genealogy at the end. Interesting, right? Just seemed like this nice little tale about this little family in Israel. Uh, It reads maybe like the good earth or something like that, right? It's like a depression era novel kind of thing when they had this famine. You get to the genealogy and you go, oh my goodness, wait, I know this kid. Anyone who had read the scriptures, you know who Obed is. Because Obed is David's grandfather. He's going to father Jesse, who's going to father David. Again, that's why they make sure you know this is all legitimate. This is the greatest king of Israel's surprising genealogy, where Ruth features prominently. Um, And then it actually says, hey, and this goes all the way back to to Genesis, all the way back to the 12 tribes. And we hear about Perez and and these other leaders, some again with some shadow scandal. But again, this is how Ruth is woven into um, these chains of promise and hope in the Old Testament. Um, We go all the way back to the earliest days of Genesis. We get to David. And then as we come to this as as Christians, we go, whoa, whoa. David's not the end of the story. That's not the greatest thing that ever happened because he's going to actually, if we keep going, we're going to get to Jesus. I mean, again, maybe you have a good study Bible that kind of told you in Ruth chapter one, verse one, hey, here's where it's going. I think that's kind of like reading the last page of a book. (laughs) But does that strike you as odd? that this little story is supposed to tell us about a relative of Jesus. That God working gently and subtly and providentially through all of this will actually create a family that will end up where the Messiah, the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah comes. Um, It's amazing. And so it's remarkable to see Rahab and Ruth in the line of David it's more remarkable to see Rahab and Ruth in the line of great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. Um, and I actually love, there's a, uh, I learned about a lady uh, named Elizabeth Rundle Charles. She wrote in the late 1900s. She was an Anglican, and she like, was one of the main inventors, I think, of religious fiction. Uh, God forgive her. But um, she would write these semi-religious works of kind of fiction. And she would flesh things out, and so she wrote a book about Ruth in 1884 to kind of flesh it out, give it a little vibrancy. Here's how she ends her retelling: She says, "And so this old story of Bethlehem ends with sweet and sacred joy in a birth in the name of Ruth, daughter of the outcast nation, and of Naomi, widowed and childless, are engraven in the pedigree of the Son of Man, of Him." Through whom none are outcasts, and in whom are not desolate hearts. That's how this fits in. Ruth, this formerly pagan woman, far from Israel, far from the Lord, welcomed through the ordinary ways of God. Popping up in Matthew, in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus. And by the way, that kinsman-redeemer idea, that's going to be really big too. Remember what I said a kinsman redeemer is? You've got a situation and you're stuck. And you have no hope of redemption or a future. And someone who is close to you and has the means and the will comes and fixes it. Hebrews loves this idea that Jesus becomes and is our kinsman redeemer. Remember, the kinsman-redeemer had to be akin to us, kin to us, and Hebrews says Jesus is our brother. The creeds make sure we know fully God, but yet fully man. He qualifies. Well, does he have the means to redeem us from our our sin, from death, from our suffering? Well, he's overflowing with righteousness. It's often said that the Lord Jesus uh, paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That's kinsman-redeemer language. Or Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's incredible, these little four chapters in the Old Testament. (laughs) We get both the line of Jesus and we see the foreshadowing of his great work how he would step in as our kinsman, redeemer. Um, again, Naomi and Ruth, there was land they never could have recovered. They're filled with death and emptiness, and we see life come, fullness come, hope come again. The book of Ruth is this little linchpin, this little bridge between the terrible time of Judges and the initial promise of the days of David, but it points ahead. Every verse, every verse, Chapter to the great hope of Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus, our great Redeemer, who redeems us through his love and generosity towards us. Um, That's why I thought it was okay to look at Ruth during Lent. When you see that it's actually about Jesus, it's about our great need. Uh, But this is our last week in Ruth. And you may have noticed that Lent is not over. Did we miscalculate? (laughs) What's happening here? Well, We're going to pivot. We're going to, if if Ruth kind of tees up the lineage of David, which tees up the genealogy of Jesus, we're going to actually follow that arrow and move more intentionally now here at the end of Lent to focus on the Lord Jesus. And so next week, we're going to look at Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son or sons, the lost boy. Uh, Maybe Jesus's most famous parable. Um, After that, we have Palm Sunday, And then we'll really retrace the last week of Jesus's life, Holy Week. We've got services here, Maundy Thursday, 7 o'clock p.m., Good Friday, 7 o'clock p.m., and then Easter Sunday. So that's our hope. We could have spent four weeks just having fun studying this book in the Old Testament, but then let's follow, uh, go with this book to the line of David and then the line of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. May we be filled with gratitude and joy having seen the ordinary ways of our extraordinary God in Ruth, having spent just these few weeks contemplating the ordinary ways God has worked, is working, and will work in our lives and in the lives of this church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.